The Money Show. Other people's money. Former IEC Commissioner Terry Tselani, the Executive Chair now of the Institute of Election Management Services in Africa, IEMSA. We can't have a long name without an acronym. It's an organization that provides election management services mostly in Africa. Are, are you completely out of the IEC now, Terry? No direct connection there whatsoever. Hi, Bruce, and uh, uh, good evening to your listeners. Uh, indeed, I am out of the Electoral Commission and its processes, and uh, happy to be managing my little outfit called IMSA, or Institute of Election Management Services in Africa, as you correctly pointed. What does that little outfit do? I mean, you go from country to country and say, okay, listen, this is what you need to run successful elections. Well, we deliver the elections for institutions that requires do so, uh, both in South Africa and uh, internationally. Uh, but also, uh, we uh, give support to election management bodies and then give also whatever support to the political parties that require our assistance with, uh, for instance, uh, uh, empowered uh, some of the political parties through uh, training. We help the Incata Freedom Party training its party agents. Uh, we manage the elections of the economic freedom fighters. Uh, we recently managed uh, the primaries of uh, uh, Action SA. So it depends really on the brief that we get from different political parties or any stakeholders or any of our clients. And as soon as we get uh, the, that brief, we are able to deliver the services as long as those services are within the electoral space. Um, do you, I mean, when you look at the situation in South Africa, 2021, is democracy as healthy and as secure as you would have hoped it would be by now, considering you were at the IEC quite some time ago? I think the level of contestation has uh, increased. Uh, there are new players that are coming in, and as a result of that, it is uh, uh, putting a lot of pressure on constitutional institutions and uh, we have seen over the years that uh, the work that the electoral commission does is being scrutinized and all the details uh, are being looked into and therefore the commission has got an added responsibility of uh, having to make sure that it delivers its uh, uh, responsibilities or mandate um, with integrity uh, knowing that uh, the difficulties that uh, political parties may identify in the process of its delivery of those elections. Uh, would you support the IAC's view that um, there should be an allowance made to political parties who'd not yeah, handed in their candidate lists on time despite very clear deadlines? Some political parties managed, some failed to do so. Um, would, you, would you concur with the IEC that it is in the best interests of democracy um, that parties like the ANC be allowed to do a late submission of candidate lists? I sympathize with the commission and therefore would support the, the, the commission in that view. However, the law does not allow it. As far as I'm concerned and as far as I've read mm. uh, the constitutional court order, uh, it does not allow the commission to do so. So even if my personal feelings would have been that uh, I sympathize with my former colleagues in terms of their interpretation uh, of uh, the constitutional court order, I think that uh, this time around, they probably misinterpreted that order because that order has limited 
uh, its powers in terms of that it could exercise in terms of Section 11 of the Municipal Electoral Act, which basically says that uh, the Commission may uh, amend the election timetable uh, in the interest of free and fair elections. In this case, uh, the Constitutional Court qualified the uh, by saying that uh, notwithstanding the fact that the commission has have those powers, uh, it must stick to the uh, election timetable which was issued on the 4th of August. Is the IEC, though, fulfilling its mandate if it does not allow the ANC to participate in these elections to the extent that it should? Um, you know, it's not the ANC voters' fault that the party was incapable of, of fielding candidates um, on time. Um, and, you know, if we're talking about free and fair elections and that is the you know, primary purpose of the IEC, surely it's got to find a way to ensure that South African voters, for, for better or for worse, um, can exercise their vote in a way that they see fit? Absolutely, there is no doubt about that. I mean, the IC has obviously got to ensure that uh, it applies the law um, in such a manner that uh, it does not disadvantage any political party. But the law is the law. I mean, if the law says uh, there's a cutoff date by, by the time, by, by uh, a period by which a political party must comply it must comply, and it does not really matter. And I always try to run away from having to deal with the specific of a political party. I just want to stick to the administration of law and what the law says mm. as a person who is an administrator in the elections. And because immediately you bring in a political party, you then have got to differentiate between different political parties and the applicability of the law in relation to those parties. If uh, the, Nash, the new the Freedom Party was uh, denied the right to participate in 2016 uh, because it had missed the cutoff date. Uh, so any other political party that actually does miss that cutoff date would mean that it would not be allowed in terms of the same electoral scheme. It's it's a sobering and and concerning view, Terry Talani, because I mean, yeah, democracy has been hard fought for and hard won, and is going to be held on to uh, 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 very vigorously by those who have got the privilege of of political power. So I'm, I'm fascinated to see how this is going to play out because it is going to the courts, and we'll we'll see. You are born in Rustenburg. You grew up in Rustenburg. What was family life like in the Talani household uh, when Terry was a boy? Well, uh, I was brought up by uh, my grandparents, and uh, we were a very big family, as you would imagine. If you are brought up by the grandparents, it would mean that uh, uh, you live with your uncles and your aunts and uh, the children in the same household. Uh, but uh, the beauty about uh, that arrangement was that uh, uh, we were, our parents, our grandparents were subsistence farmers, and then therefore, uh, most of the things that we needed uh, were uh, found uh, in the fields. So did you, were you put to work as a young kid? Did you have to go and scuffle and do all the work of, uh, of, of farm labor as a child? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did all those. Uh, I worked uh, in the fields, I plowed the fields, and then I was also a head boy. I look after the cattle. And uh, it was absolutely a wonderful experience for me to be doing all those things. Even though at the time when this was happening as a youngster, 
I didn't really appreciate it. But as time went on, I realized that I've learned so much uh, from those kind of experiences. What did you learn? You know, um, independence, uh, integrity, uh, the, uh, the the importance of having to make sure that um, uh, you uh, put in place mechanism to fend for a family, uh, whatever mechanism that you put in place uh, to deal with those uh, kind of issues, because my um, you know grandparents. Uh, uh, used the fact that there were subsistence farmers to basically cater for the family. All of us uh, were educated and uh, brought up um, uh, by the products that were coming from um, uh, the fact that they were subsistence farmers. When did you leave Rustenburg? At what age did you go and spread your wings? <laughs> well, um, I left Rustenburg basically when I was doing um, what I what we refer to as Form One. Um, uh, by that time, my parents uh, were now moving to Brits. Um There are so many things that I had learned by that time because as a as a head boy, uh, also we used to get uh, uh, wild um, uh, berries or indigenous berries, and then you know I would sell those. So by the time I left the, from one going to another school in Bethania in Brits, uh, there are so many things that I had learned about uh, uh, basically uh, managing my own uh, resources. And um, after matriculating uh, from Bethania, I went to the University of Botswana, uh, where unfortunately I spent only two years. When I was doing my third year, I was expelled in terms of internal security. And I went to Vets University. So Bob kicked you out and you went to Vets. And I mean, Vets was a, was a hotbed of excitement at that sort of time as well. Uh, but you graduated. Um, and, and you've done lots of really interesting jobs. I mean, you've, you've always been interested in politics, but you've always also been interested in, in business. Um, and at one point, you actually ran SA Tourism. I'd forgotten about that for a while. You were, you were there for a four-year, was it a four- or five-year term? Yes, I was the chief executive of the Houghton Tourism Authority for about six years. And then after that, I moved on to uh, establish the Houghton Film Commission as uh, its chief executive. And um, uh, only left after also six years to become now a full-time commissioner for the Electoral Commission. I mean, were these not you know, particularly high-paying jobs? They're very respectable and good jobs. And, um, you know, it's not, you're not creating enormous wealth along the way. Is wealth important to you? Wealth is very, very important uh, because um, uh, through wealth, you can then be able to uh, create um, a value in the, uh, in, 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 the, in, in the process and then also be able to get uh, a new businesses and new, uh, you know, uh, areas of uh, uh, innovation. And I think uh, the fact that I was part of these institutions helped me to help many people uh, to develop. There were quite a number of uh, small businesses that I developed in Houghton Tourism Authority. Most of them, I still interact with them today. And then also in uh, Houghton Film Commission, there are quite a number of producers and quite a number of few businesses that uh, I developed 
and uh, I'm proud to have made a contribution to the development uh, of those businesses. I mean, did the movie bug bite? Did the the tourism buy bug bite? Has it led to any kinds of um, sort of money spending habits that we should be aware of? So many people um, get into a job and just realise they love travelling. Oh my goodness, me, they love travelling. They get spoiled by all this corporate travel, and they go and see the world, and then they can't stop. And it ends up costing a fortune because also they can't go alone, so they take their partners with them and they um, just have to experience the world. Have you um, sort of fallen into that? It's a wonderful trap, but a trap nevertheless. No, 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 no. In fact, I learned that, uh, you know, very uh, early on in my life uh, when I uh, left the university and I became the the, national organizer of the NECC, National Education Coordinating Committee. Uh, I was traveling throughout the country, establishing structures of, uh, you know, uh, for uh, the the NECC for future education uh, systems. And uh, in so doing, uh, I was basically not spending my money. Uh, I was uh, uh, being hosted in hotels. I was... uh, you know, obviously because of the work that I was doing, um, you know, not really spending the money that I was uh, uh, I was earning. And I made sure that I saved basically every cent of it. By the time uh, I left the organization three years, I had saved almost every cent uh, that I had actually worked for, uh, which was absolutely wonderful because that's the first, uh, period when I actually learned that I can actually save uh, so 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 much money. I did not need to use uh, that money. So even when I was with Houghton uh, Film Commission and Houghton Tourism traveling, uh, I always was conscious of the fact that I've got to save whatever little resources if government uh, or the organizers I was working for uh, was paying for accommodation. There was no need for me uh, to be spending money uh, recklessly, I had to make sure that uh, I still continue to save money uh, for those moments when um, I would need to utilize those resources for other things. And what have you invested in? I mean, have you been a, a good investor? Have you invested in other businesses? Have you invested in unit trusts? Have you bought retirement products? Because um, I, I wonder, I'm curious. Yeah, well, when I started, obviously, uh, basic things like uh, unit trusts and uh, education policies, retirement funds. Um, you know, I invested uh, in those uh, areas. And uh, I know that, uh, Bruce, the majority of people that you you, you, you interview here, they will talk about uh, how they came from, uh, you know, the rights to riches. I'm not that kind of a person. Uh, even though I had been saving the resources, the fact that you're starting a new business, especially under COVID, would put strain on even the resources that you had uh, saved. Uh, you'd have to spend all the, the money that you have uh, saved to basically develop a new business. Uh, but yes, at the period, uh, at, at the time when I started, I indeed uh, saved uh, lots of resources uh, in uh, those uh, different vehicles uh, with understanding that at a later stage I would need to use those resources uh, for whatever purpose and then IMSA as an organization provided me with an opportunity to spend those resources. But unfortunately, because of the uh, COVID, as I've indicated, 
uh, it put a lot of strain on the resources mm-hmm. that uh, one had saved over the years. So you've had to draw down on some of your on some of your investments and some of your savings over time. But things are settling down a little bit now, though. I mean, I suppose as you know, vaccinations take hold and as economies open up, things hopefully do become just a little bit more fluid and a bit easier. Absolutely, we are all looking forward to that. I'm sure, or I'm certain that any uh, a person who is currently running a small business will tell you about. Uh, the negative effect that the lockdown and COVID has had in their businesses. And therefore, all of us are really looking forward to a normalization of the situation so that we can begin to take advantage uh, of opportunities that are out there. Uh, For instance, an organization such as ours, uh, with an ambition of having to develop systems and and, and clientele throughout the continent, uh, was limited by the fact that we are not allowed to travel uh, internationally, we could not leave our country. We were confined, uh, you know, to our homes. And therefore, that has also had uh, uh, some kind of an impact on the capacity of the organization to develop as a fully-fledged organization. And people forget how limited expensive it is to set these things up. Um, you know, just the, the costs that you would never assume would be costs in setting up a business are enormous and they are you know, quite frightening. And if you don't have the cash flow, absolutely debilitating, ultimately. Absolutely. I think, you know, quite a number of organizations that are not able to make it, it is largely uh, because of uh, uh, those basic costs that uh, one has got to incur to establish an organization. I mean, just a simple thing of having to establish a space uh, from which you operate uh, requires enormous uh, investment. Uh, Whether you are going to be uh, renting a property or you're going to be using your own home, you've got, it means you've got to invest a lot of resources, you've got to convert your home into a proper office, you've got to buy stuff that would make sure that you are able to operate, but you also need administrative capacity to be able to do so. You know, in the past, when I was part of uh, a government institutions such as Houghton Film Commission, Houghton Tourism Authority, and the IEC, there was always, um, you know, a, a resource that one could actually rely on, uh, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, human resources or uh, otherwise. Uh, I didn't have to buy a, a computer, a laptop. I relied on the ones that have been bought for by the organization, I did not have to struggle about whether uh, to employ an assistant or not. I didn't have to worry about having to now uh, uh, get uh, uh, an accountant or uh, an auditor uh, because it was a given that the resources that are there, you would manage them in such a manner that you can be able to afford to have all the capacities that you require. But now when you are on your own, all of a sudden you realize that oh, my goodness, now I need administrative support because if I'm not available, yeah. uh, there must be someone who can actually be able to do things. If I'm in hospital, someone must be able, the organization must still proceed and operate. And I've got to have someone now who's got a specialized skill. I need someone who, when my laptop uh, you know, freezes, can be able to unblock it. Uh, I need to have now an IT specialist who can... Yeah, you, Terry, you're, you're speaking. Company. You're speaking the language of every startup, <laughs> and it's the brutal reality <laughs> of the real world. But listen, I mean, it's wonderful to hear you, and I'm sorry that things are a bit tough at the moment. But I'm sure that um, you know that you will overcome as you have many times before, 
and uh, the private sector is exciting and the opportunities are enormous and I wish you luck with the Institute of Election Management Services in Africa, IMSA, Terry Tselani, former uh, commissioner of the uh, of the Independent Electoral Commission.